Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi there and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast and today I'm going to talk about the politics of national service in Great Britain between 1945 and 1949. I'm working from the brilliant book National Service by Richard Vinan uh, and the reason why I want to talk about this is because national service, the conscription of um, young British men into the army was really a kind of a, a historical uh, anomaly um, and of course the the uh, compulsory service of British women into the Women's Army Corps, the Wrens and the Women's Auxiliary Air Force. Uh, the use of conscription in European countries is a, a fairly standard feature of the modern era and national services seen still in countries like France and Germany as being pretty standard. In Britain it was never really um, considered either a necessity or something that was um, supposed to have social benefits. The reason why it hasn't been considered to be a necessity is because of Britain's island status the ability of Britain to protect itself with a large navy and the uh, unlikelihood of Britain being uh, being invaded. Europe, uh, European nations with land borders always face this possibility and so since the French Revolution, mass civilian uh, population mobilisation, the levy en masse, has been uh, a key feature, not just in France, but in nearly every other major European state. And uh, the uh, social uh, and political ideas behind national service are in part, in some parts of Europe, to draw people into the idea of the nation, uh, to draw people into the idea of uh, the patrie, the fatherland, to sacrifice and serve on the behalf of the nation 
uh, and to help shape notions of, of national identity, service and sacrifice. And also there are all sorts of kind of um, psychological and gender-based um, ideas about making a man of you, uh, trying to take um, people with kind of lawless or offending behaviour and straighten them out through strict turf army discipline, uh, all these sorts of ideas. There was very little of that actually motivating um, British post-war conscription. Most British post-war conscription was motivated by Britain's immediate military realities. So in 1945, Britain's overseas military commitments didn't end. If anything, they actually um, escalated with the creation of new Cold War conditions, the need of British soldiers to be in Palestine, in Greece, in Malaya or Hong Kong or Singapore or a whole variety of other places, um, develops uh, as the new world of Cold War uh, anxieties and tensions also develops. So I'm going to read now from um, The Politics of Conscription, which is chapter three of Richard Vinan's National Service, and he writes, Constraint was the basis of national service, and this was true of the country as much as it was for the men who turned up for basic training. Politicians did not introduce peacetime conscription because they thought it was, uh, would do young men good. Anthony Eden, the Conservative shadow foreign secretary, said, I have never heard anyone defend conscription for the sake of conscription. Rather, it was maintained after the war because politicians could see no other way of meeting immediate military needs. The matter was not, in any case, at the centre of post-war political debates. Discussion, such as it was, revolved around the length of service rather than its necessity. And just as conscripts gritted their teeth and said, two years to push, so politicians made national service palatable, partly by insisting that it was a temporary measure, one that was never, at any particular moment, underwritten by legislation, designed to last for more than five years. So peacetime conscriptions, as I said previously, is um, pretty unique in Britain um, and almost certainly um, not part of uh, overall British uh, military policy. Um, in Europe, um, compulsory military service was um, pretty much baked into most modern European states, but the sea uh, had been the key to Britain's defences. Uh, land armies that developed in 19th century Europe um, were necessary in Britain. Britain always had a small um, volunteer force, a professional army, the British Expeditionary Force of 1914, for example. Um, and at times of national crisis, it was able to uh, recruit far larger uh, bodies of, of men. Um, th when the British did fight on land, they often did so by, um, from the Napoleonic Wars onwards, by subsidising local forces, by paying for um, uh, European uh, armies in Europe uh, to operate or arming or equipping them, or, or sometimes using the empire to recruit local troops such as sepoys in, in India. The whole point of the British Army is it's meant to be small, and it was made up in large measure of long-serving soldiers, professional soldiers that knew, knew the business of fighting. 
um, the Richard Vinan writes, Far from being the people in arms, the British army consisted of men drawn from a distinct section of society, usually the poorest, sometimes who'd spent years serving in the remote garrisons overseas, especially in India. Respectable people often regarded soldiers with horror. When William Robertson, the first man in the British history to, from the, to rise from the rank of private to that of field marshal, abandoned his position as a domestic servant to enlist as a private, his mother allegedly wrote, I would rather bury you than see you in a red coat. So there were all sorts of ideas, particularly about social class and respectability and aspiration, that were incorporated into um, soldierly life and uh, incorporated into the ideas of it being a sort of a slightly subversive idea um, and and being sort of slightly associated with um, society's lower orders. So conscription didn't begin during the Boer War um, from 1899 to 1902, but it was the aftermath of the Boer War that made the difference. Um, politicians, retired army officers, um, and the uh, those who had uh, witnessed um, Britain's relatively mediocre performance in South Africa uh, founded the National Service League. Uh, the League um, argued uh, that Germany was the key threat to Great Britain. Uh, the Kaiser's various inopportune comments over South Africa um, had raised this suspicion and, and fear, along with the growing uh, in naval rivalries that were developing between Britain and, and Germany. And the, there was a fear that um, the uh, level of fitness required to take on a European rival like Germany did not exist uh, amongst young British men. Instead, um, there needed to be some kind of uh, national... Uh, compulsory training um, and only a few months uh, of this would be full time um, and this would mean that there would be a, a, a reserve army of young men ready to fight if and when Britain, uh, Germany invaded. There were all sorts of anxieties and fears. I've talked about this previously when I talked about the, the development of Britain's secret services um, in the first decade of the 20th century uh, about the, the possibility of a German invasion. There were various kind of crime novels such as Erskine Childers or spy novels like Erskine Childers Riddle of the Sands and uh, the various John Buchan novels um, that presented this as a, a realistic possibility and so culture and reality sort of played off one another to create this, this heightened sense of of anxiety uh, and there was a fear that Britain wasn't really ready for it and it's interesting that the, uh, the Boer War produces this culture at the same time it's producing many of the arguments for the modern welfare state uh, that deficiency diseases were so rife among young British men um, from working class backgrounds that they had to be turned away from uh, recruiting stations. The League um, in 1905 became more uh, dynamic when uh, Lord Roberts, who had um, retired as uh, Commander-in-Chief of the British Army, uh, began to um, take charge of it. And Leo Amory, one of Churchill's um, good friends, um, who was a rising star within the Conservative Party, um, became its secretary. So the League managed to access itself um, plenty of, of funding, um, and by a 
and by 1913 it had a membership of almost a hundred thousand. Um, so, but even even this large membership base, and even this leadership, and even this organisation, um, didn't have um, any impact on contemporary political debates about conscription. There was nobody interested in introducing peacetime conscription whatsoever. Of course, during the First World War, Britain does manage to recruit a large volunteer army, and conscription wasn't required until 1916. The point AJP Taylor makes about conscription in, in 1916 is that it was largely based around um, kind of various hoo-hahs created in the Daily Mail. That by 1916, Britain didn't need conscription because it had uh, already an abundance of volunteers. It had more volunteers than it could actually train. This is the year of the Battle of the Somme, which tells you something about popular attitudes towards uh, the war. And the Daily Mail was really cr trying to create uh, some kind of manufactured controversy to, to uh, excite its readers about those who were shirking, not doing their bit. It is the conscription that divides the liberal government at the time um, and the, uh, the instincts of some members of the party are to go with conscription because it seems to be uh, a popular measure. Whereas Asquith himself saw it as a profoundly illiberal thing to do. So, Richard Vinan writes, During the First World War, Britain raised a large army, but conscription was not introduced until 1916. Indeed, in some ways, deliberate direction of manpower, the word itself was coined during the war, was about keeping men out of the army as much as getting them in, because the voluntary recruitment campaigns that took place in the war had stripped factories of their workers. Sir Auckland Geddes, um, later of Geddes Axe fame, a member of the National Service League and the first minister of national service, later suggested that the main function of such a ministry should be to prevent the militant and pugnacious young men of the country flocking in excessive numbers into the fighting services to the detriment of essential civilian activities. So the, um, the Churchill government during the Second World War, um, made sure that there were uh, reserved um, occupations that men uh, and women were uh, kept to reserved occupations um, that, and that prevented them from going to the... There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Front line. Um, and these were things such as um, train drivers, coal miners, teachers, um, and doctors. The kind of stuff that would keep the country actually going. So in the 1920s and 30s, um, conscription is barely discussed in Britain. Um, Germany obviously had no conscription at this time. Germany had an army of 100,000, um, and there was no clear military set to Britain. Um, Charles de Gaulle in France um, published a book in 1934 called Towards the Professional Army, or Vers l'Ami de Métier. Um, and it was scandalous in France because it called for the professionalisation of the army, um, which was seen as an anti-democratic measure, the idea that the army could be taken out of the people's hands, that the kind of conscription was no longer necessary, was, was actually seen as, as a fundamentally, fundamentally bad thing. A professional army in Britain uh, was just simply um, a given, a take, taken for granted. Um, the sizes of uh, the British Army um, were limited by the state of public finances during the from 1929 to about 1934. Obviously, public finances are in a terrible crisis during this time. Shipbuilding goes into uh, radical, radical decline, um, and through this sense uh, that the army was really um, the last resort for otherwise uh, unemployable men. Um, there was um, uh, nothing really uh, contributed to the, the esteem of the armed forces um, other than it being seen as a kind of a glorified dole queue. Um, so uh, during the uh, 1930s, there were men who preferred to spend their days uh, in poverty than actually um, take up uh, military uniform and get fed. Um, the army seems a particularly unattractive place to go. There was opposition to conscription came from three areas. Um, the first was nationalism. Irish nationalists resented the idea uh, that they might be required to fight for the British Empire. Um, there were large numbers of Irishmen who volunteered for the British Army in both world wars. Um, however, um, the government was um, very, very reluctant to introduce um, conscription in Ireland, and during and even that, even during the First World War, the second was probably a more powerful force was liberalism. The Liberal Party objected to any restriction on individual freedom um, and the um, in the growth of the state in in this regard. And the third was socialism. The argument that military service was a kind of democratic, this, this French idea, or even um, that military service was revolutionary, that only really works in a country where there's been a revolution like the French Revolution. Um, and this idea counts for very, very little in, in Britain, 
where the army is tied up with ideas of class, service and deference. Um, and kind of still is, really. Um, the Labour Party uh, was objected to militarism of any sort, and then particularly after the First World War, when it had been uh, the popular idea of the working classes going over the top, had been um, um, such a, a kind of a, a radical, um, uh, a radical force changing the debate regarding uh, national service and shifting that debate to the left um, and seeing national service as really kind of almost class exploitation, that there was um, uh, very little, uh, very little scope for these kinds of debates during the 1920s and 30s. Labour politicians were afraid of the possibility of industrial conscription, that workers might be forced to work under government control in factories um, or that military discipline might even be used to break strikes that they might be seen also as not in the national interest and against um, the uh, interests of the state in peace or, or war. And generally, it made certain uh, democratic politicians feel very nervous, the idea of there being a kind of a large peacetime army around to do whatever the government instructed it to do. Um, the, um, uh, the left of the Labour Party had complicated um, relations with the army during the 1930s uh, because, on the one hand, there were those who uh, worried about a more authoritarian government breaking democratic norms in Great Britain, but also there was a belief that, there, that rapid rearmament should happen because of the threat of Nazism. Uh, when Nazi Germany eventually uh, brought about conscription um, in April 1939, um, Neville Chamberlain introduced the Military Training Act, which made it required all men aged 20 to 22 to undergo six months of training as militiamen. Um, this was opposed by the Labour Party. In September that year, there was no opposition when the government brought about the National Service Act, which which conscripted men between 18 and 41 um, to register for military service. Um, and this passed all through all three stages in one day on the 3rd of September 1939. So this ex was extended in 1942 to take men up to the age of 50 and then married and childless women between eight, the ages of 18 and 30. So that's where are the, the kind of the post-war traditions uh, of military service that lasted into the 1960s uh, emerged from. National service um, extended beyond military service. There were the Bevin boys, the uh, men who uh, went down the, the coal mines to, to, to run the coal mines during the war. Men of military age uh, worked in war industries um, and could actually be forbidden from taking their place in the armed services. Um, and the Queen, uh, the Princess Elizabeth herself at the time, and now Queen, um, much to the kind of the, the shock of some of the, the members of court, was um, uh, required to register at the age of 18 and join the, uh, the Women's Army Corps, uh, where she learned to mend Land Rovers, as being a skill that served her throughout her life. And at this phase, 
conscription is pretty uncontro- uh, uncontroversial. A country that was has been bombed by Nazi Germany, that has seen off the threat of invasion, um, is more likely to take the need for mass military service pretty seriously. Um, at the end of the war, British generals and politicians uh, began to discuss with, the, with one another um, about the continuation of the policy. Abolition would have been difficult uh, when there were British servicemen all over the world. It's difficult to simply just say, come home, when there are troops in place. They're normally there for a reason. They're normally carrying out um, operations, uh, be it not necessarily against Germany, Japan or Italy, but uh, uh, but as the war has ended, uh, against the, the new realities that confront them um, in uh, very far more kind of complex situations. Um, and to carrying out sort of, I suppose you call um, police actions, which is um, the uh, British troops were required really to act as a kind of like a gendarmerie in areas that, that Britain had, had fallen under Britain's control during the war. Uh, these uh, range from um, Java and Sumatra to Vietnam. Um, they were there were British soldiers, of course, all over Europe. Um, the uh, various different um, uh, the various different roles that British soldiers took part in um, was exacerbated as it would appear that India was about to become independent. And from 1945 onwards, the army of India can't really be relied on anymore um, because it simply refuses to carry out the colonial policing work that the British want uh, due to the various kind of crises and, and politics of the, of, of the war. Um, the British um, maintained uh, contacts with, the, for example, the Gurkha regiments in, in Nepal and used POWs from Germany and Japan and Italy to provide years of free labour um, after the end of the fighting. There were Poles that remained with the British Army until 1949 uh, and the, the British government did consider creating a foreign legion um, which would recruit from the, the various dispossessed and... Um, the various um, sort of stateless young men in Europe who had fled communism and or Nazism. Um, however, the, the real answer, as far as British politicians were concerned, this real kind of answer to this, this growing, this looming manpower crisis, uh, was to create national service. Um, when Labour won the general election, it was a landslide victory, in 1945, which was a, a terrible shock to many of the Conservatives. The election was fought on questions of housing, of health care, of uh, building a new welfare state. It wasn't fought on the issue of national service. And it was um, won in many ways um, by the vote from uh, overseas working class soldiers. Uh, the 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 military uh, the military postal vote, and many of them did not anticipate that military service would continue for over a decade uh, longer uh, than the end of the Second World War itself, uh, and this itself would be a kind of a, a, a powerful theme within uh, British society after the end of the war. The British society uh, would continue to be a society in part based around militarism post-war.
Anyway, I'm going to finish there. Um, I hope you find this useful. Um, we've got a, a special treat for you guys next week. I'll be reviewing Dark Shadows by Joanna Lillis. Joanna Lillis is a, a journalist in Central Asia who writes for The Guardian, uh, The Economist and Eurasia Net. We'll be chatting about her new book. We'll be chatting about the politics of Kazakhstan and the experience of writing and reporting uh, from this, this very, very poorly understood part of Central Asia and the, uh, the former Soviet Union. So look forward to that. There you go. My Christmas treat to you all. Uh, and I'll catch you this time next week. Thanks. All the best. Bye bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 